Uh, if you're visiting, we have been going through the book of Numbers. And the reason that we have been doing that is because it is my firm belief and John Larson's in our sessions that we live in a culture that has lost the, the significance and the importance of the body of Christ, the church. Before we come and read our text and, and see the people of God uh, uh, floundering in the wilderness yet again, I was speaking to someone this week from out of town, and we were talking about uh, solitary confinement, and that actually one of the worst things that you can do to a person is put them in solitary confinement because it cuts them off from other people, and they live in their heads, and they begin to lose a sense of who they are. And what is amazing to me is how many people put themselves in solitary confinement. And you fall into depression, you fall into discouragement. You're not part of what's going on out there in the world and you lose kind of a sense of reality, don't you? But if that's true of unbelievers and and society in general, how much more is that true if we are professing believers of Christ, taking vows to uh, to one another and before God, that we're not involved in each other's lives? And so as we come to our text, uh, I would say this, that your attitude toward the church says a great deal about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Period. To, to, to be united to Christ is to be united to his body, is to be united to each other, is to be involved in each other's life, to love, rebuke, to encourage, to exhort. Unless you don't know Christ. And then it doesn't matter. You just go to church on Sunday. Very important. So with that in mind, I want you to turn to our text today. It's found in Numbers 20. I'm going to begin with verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here? both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. And then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. And so you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, we shall, shall we bring water for you out of the rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into that land that I have given them, 
And these are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God, that we are not left in the dark, that you have spoken to us. We thank you that you're the God of space and time. You're the God who's created space and time. Before the mountains were ever formed, you are from everlasting to everlasting the true and living God. And you have revealed yourself through the scriptures, through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for those who are here today who have cut themselves off from you by their own sin and their own willfulness. Lord, would you cause them to be thirsty today and see that all the things that they have pursued in this life really are not satisfying and that they would find drink in Jesus Christ. And Father, for us who are believers, who are slow learners, like Moses and the people here, Lord, we thank you that you're gracious to slow learners. But Lord, help us to mature and grow and not be babies after 5, 10, 15 years of being believers, but that we would become mature and that we would reproduce and that we would be effective. We pray for our church, Redeemer. God, that you would send revival among us. Father, for those who are hurting today, I pray for them, that you would encourage them to see that you're good and gracious to sinners. And so, Lord, we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit, for we cannot change ourselves. But you, Lord, can. So, Lord, give us the eye of faith to look to Christ and be transformed today. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. When I was a sophomore in college... uh, I had a full-time job. I worked at night at a mental hospital. Actually, it's called Marshall Pickens. And I was a behavioral therapist for uh, kids between the ages of six and nine. And it's a fancy word for I was a babysitter for them at night. Okay? Uh, I mean, how can you be a behavioral therapist at 18 years old? However, I learned a lot, trust me. Uh, but it was a program that was based on B.F. Skinner's behavioral modification. And so you had uh, five or six kids, and uh, they all had these little socks they carried around with them. They had these little red chips, like poker chips. And uh, so they had these goals that I had to learn when I first got there, and, and uh, I can't remember all the goals. But, uh, and so if a kid was like being uh, nicer than, you know, while they're playing, you say, oh, you're really nice, and you give them a chip, and then they could buy things with those chips. Of course, this is the opposite of what the Bible teaches, you know, about earning your way. And uh, so, but there was one kid named Wes, and uh, Wes had, his goal was uh, have a better, uh, uh, have a better attitude. And then beside it, it said that he was passive aggressive. Well, I didn't know what passive aggressive was, but, you know, I was young enough to go, well, I don't want to ask because I want to act like I know what I'm doing. And so, but it took me a couple of weeks to figure out what passive aggressive was because every time uh, Wes would come up to hug me, he'd accidentally poke me in the eye. Or he would uh, knee me in the shin or kick me in the stomach. Oh, I'm so sorry. And then after a while, I went, oh, I get what passive aggressive is. So we loaded up that boy with chips for nine months. And, uh, and boy, we saw some great, uh, you know, great, great stuff going on with, with Wes. And, uh, of course, he could buy free time. He could buy snacks. He could buy all kind of stuff for those chips. Well, we, we, uh, he graduated. And he went off to school. And within a week, he hit another kid with a chair. And, uh, and I thought, wow, you're kidding me. You mean nine months? What did he learn? He's a slow learner. But over the years, you know what I've discovered? Uh, as I've gotten into my 50s, i discovered that we're all that way, aren't we? We tend to be slow learners. 
And as believers, we're particularly slow. Right? You say, well, why is it that I can't get the gospel of grace into my head, from my head to my heart? Why is it that I'm always still seeming to be right back at the same spot that I was? Why is it that though I believe the gospel and God has demonstrated his love for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, every Sunday we talk about it, his resurrection, your sins are buried, they're complete, they're done, you're united to Christ, and not only has he shown his provision in the scriptures, but he's also shown, if you're a believer, you know that he's been gracious to you, covering your bases all the time, right? Why is it rather than using my tongue for sharing the gospel, give God praise, bringing life and hope to people, rather we complain, right? We complain and we get angry and we're bitter. And man, What is this about? Well, join the crowd. Because you see, not only are we going to see in our text that, that uh, the people of God are slow learners and they're complaining again after 40 years, what we're going to see is that Moses himself is a slow learner and Aaron, and what they're going to do in our text is going to keep them after 40 years of shepherding these people is going to keep them from going in the promised land. And you're going, whoa, how can that be? That seems to be harsh. Well, it it is until you understand the text. It should be an encouragement to us, right? That Moses is a slow learner. We need a greater than Moses. So so I'm going to to tell you where we're we're headed. What I want to talk about is uh, first off that the people of God are slow learners. And then we're going to see that Moses was. And then I want us to see, though, because you need to understand, if you're here for the first time, you've never been a redeemer, you're like, oh, here we go, I'm at church, I'm going to get beat up. No, I don't want to beat you up, I want to kill you, so to speak, with the law. And so you look to Christ, but, but there's, grace, there's grace we see at, at the end of this text. It's grace for slow learners. We're not as patient, are we? As God is. Well, before I come to the first point, let me give you the context because some of y'all are visiting and it's like, whoa, what's the book of Numbers all about? God has called his people, Israel. He's chosen them for whatever reason. He didn't choose the Hittites, the Perizzites. He could have, but he chose Israel. And he made a promise to Abraham that through your seed, all the nations will be blessed and I'll make a great nation out of you. 430 years later, this guy that was barren, man, they're doing the census in the book of Numbers after they've been delivered out of Egypt. And there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, God's great promise to what he said to Abraham. A physical people, the people of Israel, and they flourished in the land. And so they come to Mount Sinai and God constitutes them from a bunch of tribes, 12 tribes, into a nation, the nation of Israel. And he gives them their declaration of independence, which is the Ten Commandments, believe it or not. And so you come to the book of Numbers and right after Mount Sinai they slip on the other side and they start counting them. And they're counting them for two reasons. To prepare them for how to worship God, setting them around the tent of meeting, but also to prepare them for war. To go into the land of Canaan to bring judgment as God gives grace to Israel. And so as you come to Numbers, what's kind of interesting about Numbers from chapter 1 up to chapter 13 is about two years. And then in chapter 13, something happens, and from chapter 13 to where we are right now is about 40 years, seven chapters, 40 years of them in the wilderness. And then you're going to see that for the rest of the chapters, it's about nine months before they enter in. So here they are, after the end of the 40 years, they're about 
to enter into the promised land. And here they are tested again with the same testing. Forty years later, the same thing, almost. And so what we learn from this uh, is that God is, uh, that God is gracious, that he is, he is teaching us of his grace and his concern for us. But what was it that got them out there in the first place? Why, why were they out there? Why, why from 13 to, to, to 20 did they go out into the wilderness? Well, right before, after the two years, they sent Caleb and Joshua and 12 other guys out to spy, 10 others to spy the land, right? They're three weeks away. So they go out to spy the land. They come back. And there's a minority report and there's a majority report. And the minority report came from Caleb and Joshua. And Caleb says this. He silenced the people and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. We need to do this. Now why do they believe that? Because they, by by God's grace, had faith to understand what God had already done and what he will do. And Joshua was the same way. But notice there were ten others. It's always the majority that don't get it. And what does he say? What do they say? But the men who had gone up with him said, we, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. And they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. And all the people we saw are of great size. And we saw the Nephilim there. And we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked at the same to them. That's the end of 13. That's how it ends. And guess who won the argument? The 10. Because it says the people gathered together that evening and they raised their voices and they wept aloud and all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the whole assembly to them. If we had died in Egypt... Or in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land to let us fall by the sword? Unbelief. Now we might think, God, what do they not get about this, right? They're slow learners. If I had been there and I'd seen what God had done to the Egyptians and drowned them in the ocean, if I'd seen God do this and I'd seen God do that, I would believe. But friends, let me tell you what. We have a much sure testimony. We have the scriptures that says God became flesh. And he lived among us. And he came into the wilderness of the world to take us out of the wilderness into the promised land of eternal life. And many of us have experienced this grace. And yet we begin to doubt. We're no different than they are. And we need God's grace just like they did. And that's the beauty. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for the scriptures. The beauty of what we'll see. Well, now here they are again at the end of the 40 years and that generation that God said would die had died out and now it's the next generation. And here they are again, thirsty. And, uh, and they're complaining. And so we see that they didn't learn a lot. That's what it says in verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Now, he's just talking about our brothers. He's talking about the the, the sin of of Dothan and Abiram. When 250 were wiped away and then 14,000 were killed in a single day. And they were like, it would have been better for us to have died there. Now we got to go in here and die by the sword and leave our wives and our children to these giants? 
some ways, I'm being kind to say they're slow learners. It seems here that they don't learn anything, right? Wouldn't you say that? They haven't learned anything. And 40 years later, we find them again complaining, anger, angry, ungrateful, and the root is unbelief. Now, let me just say this. Yeah, if you're not a believer, okay, you're here today, you're not a Christian, maybe you have to be here, I don't know. I certainly want you to know Jesus Christ. But if you're here and you're a secular person, this is why you're cynical, right? I mean, it only makes sense if you don't believe there's a resurrection of the dead and you look and you're 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, you say, man, what has been will be. Have you noticed how cynical things are? Well, it only makes sense to be cynical. Because there's no way out. There's no way out of the wilderness. There is no promised land. There is no hope beyond. And so we become cynical. Now that shouldn't be the way it is with Christians. And yet we as Christians often find ourselves cynical, don't we? Because we do not believe the gospel. Because we do not believe the grace of God to come and be united to Christ and understand all the fullness that's in it. But not only that, if you look at Eastern religion and the yin and the yang and there's just the light and darkness and kind of the Star Wars, there's always this fight between good and evil, this nebulous thing, and it's cyclical. You know what? There's no door outside of the circle. What has been will be. And some variation on a theme that's there. But the scriptures teach us why we're the way we are. And why we're hard-hearted. And why it is that we find ourselves at the same spot that we don't have to be at that same spot. I'm doing a Bible study on Tuesday mornings. It's a great passage that I think addresses this. I'm doing a Bible study with our, with our uh, what shall I say, Mary, our older people. Uh, don't have a name for it, but yeah, let's say retired people. There we go. And we've been going through the book of Mark. Had a good time going through Mark. Looking at who Jesus Christ is. And one of the passages, there are two passages that we looked at kind of back to back, and one was where Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? Uh, with, uh, uh, with loaves and fishes. And then, then right before this chapter, he feeds 4,000. The first time there's 12 basketfuls left. The second time there's seven basketfuls le- left. And then it says in Mark chapter 9 that the disciples, had, they get on a boat, and it says the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for the one loaf that they had with them in the boat. And so Jesus, using this as a teaching time, says, you know, you need to be careful and watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. (laughs) And they discussed with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? You say, I would have believed. Are you kidding? And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not see or understand? Are, you heart, are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets were left? And they said 12. And they said the, 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 the 4,000 and seven loaves, how many were left? And they said baskets, they said seven. And Jesus says, do you still not understand? He he describes the reason we're slow to learn, guys, is because of, remember what he said? The hardness of heart. And I tell you, if your heart is hard, it's because of unbelief. And you say, well, what is hardness of heart? Well, let me tell you, the opposite of hardness of heart is in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, blessed are you this morning if your heart is pure, for you'll see God. 
But what he's talking about there in the Greek is not pure in that, oh, I have a wonderful heart. My heart's not wonderful. I wouldn't want anybody to know my heart, and you wouldn't either. But what it does mean is an undivided heart. A heart that's single-minded toward Christ and the gospel, that you're not looking to the law of Moses. And you're not looking to all these other things. So you're looking to Christ. And when you do, it's hard to harden your heart, okay? It is hard because of who he is and what he's accomplished. In the scripture, it talks about God being in the Old Testament, in the New, that God is the potter and we're the clay, right? You know that song? Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. You're the potter, we're the clay. But what's interesting, if you go to Jeremiah, he uses that language a lot. And you know what kind of, you know what kind of clay that you can mold with a potter? It's clay that is soft, malleable. But when there's no water for the clay, there's no water, there's no moisture, there's nothing coming from the outside, and that clay pot sits there without an external source, it dries up. And you know what the potter does? When it can't form it anymore and it starts busting into pieces... He grabs it and he throws it away to the heap because it's not malleable. Every Sunday, our our prayer is, Lord, who are our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. And we're not even asking for stuff until that is the request. To say, Lord God, I believe in you. I rest in you. You're the living God and I submit my life to you. So they're slow learners, right? How about you? You slow learner? I know you are. I am too. And that's why 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that pointing to this passage, these things were given in the Old Testament. For our examples, this morning, this morning, so that your hearts might not be hardened. And now God have mercy upon you. If you're not willing, at least admit you're a slow learner. Lest you're not learning any more at all. And the clay is beginning to crack and break. Well, not only do we see that with the people, but we also learn that Moses and Aaron were slow to learn. So they're complaining. And so Moses and Aaron, they come to the tent. You know, they they, they initially get it right. What do they do? They fall down and they say, uh, before the glory of the Lord, we're helpless. What can we do? And what's very interesting here is that the remaining of the, the remainder of this text, and the text is really not focusing on God's people. You know who it's going to focus on? Moses. It's going to focus on his sin. And I'm going to just warn you elders and deacons and other leaders in the church to just be, be prepared. And me too. Because that is where the focus is. Now what do we see about Moses here? Well, if you really look at it, he's not doing what God taught him to do. And we're going to see this in a moment. But ultimately, Moses ends up right back where he was 40 years earlier. Or, no, I'm sorry, 80 years earlier when he was a young man in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses realizes he's one of God's people and he goes down and he has a burden for him and he sees him oppressed, it bothers him. And it says this, that Moses one day after he'd grown up, he went out to, to where his own people were and watched them uh, at their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. 
And the next day he went out and saw the two Hebrews fighting. They're fighting with each other. Wait a minute, I've, I've done this and now y'all fighting with each other? Sound like church. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You see, what Moses does in our text, and Aaron does, is they don't obey God. They kind of step in the way, and they become judge and deliverer. They disregard God's instruction. Well, let me give you what his instruction is. Look there in your text. What was the instruction? It says, And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord said to Moses, You take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brothers, and tell the rock, tell the rock, talk to the rock, don't talk to the people. You just tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. And so you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And so Moses took the staff from before the Lord and he, as he commanded him. You see, God, th- th- this is the amazing thing. God wants to be gracious to Israel. He's already shown grace to a rebellious people they continued not to believe. Now they're getting ready to fall into unbelief again, and, but this time there's no judgment. He's going to be gracious to them. And maybe that bothered Moses. I don't know. But he doesn't do what God says. He does uh, what he decided that he would do. And you know what he does? Here's what he does. He, he gathers the people together, and rather than talking to the rock, guess who he talks to? Them. And what does he say to them? You rebels. And then he gets angry and what does he do? He hits a rock when God told him not to. And not only does he hit it once, how many times has he hit it, guys? Twice. You go, well, what's the deal here? Well, you know, guys, we're going to start driving to a greater mediator who's Jesus Christ, who's the rock. Let me tell you what Moses did. It was wrong. Number one is he set himself up as judge. God, did, God is the one who judges. How, how, now, let me just ask you, how much do you do that? And I do that. We, we judge people. And, uh, and, 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 you know, it's because of self-righteousness. And if, you're, if you're an unbeliever here and you think that church is about good people, you've been in the wrong church. Church is about bad people. I said over and over again that the cross says to all you bad people, you fornicators and drug addicts and people don't like God and don't go to church and fish on Sunday. He says, y'all really that bad? That's what the cross says. It says you're that bad that somebody has to die. You know what the cross says to all the good people that are out there? People go to church and they've never had an affair even though they don't like their spouses. People that wouldn't look at pornography but, you know, they would uh, steal paper clips from the office. He says, uh, all you people, y'all that bad too. And therefore, Paul says in Galatians, I boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. For that cross is my righteousness. But no, you know what, Moses, he took the place of judge. Let me ask you this. Is it fun judging people? Y'all enjoy that. I, 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 you know, I really don't after I do it, and I do it a good bit. Matter of fact, I'm glad I got my wife. She's, I'll say something, and she'll say, well, you know, I don't know. What about this? I'm like, okay, all right. You know, but it's never fun. 
And that's really cool when you start going, well, you know, they're not where they need to be, but hey, this is a good thing God's doing. It's a lot more fun. Now, how about you? Are you in like Moses who judges people? And you're miserable. Fundamentalism is miserable. And when people say, well, what do you mean by fundamentalist? What I mean by that is not the fundamentalist, the fundamentalism. That as long as I believe the fundamentals of the faith, and I believe Jesus Christ raised the dead, the Bible's word of God, da, 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 I can just basically do what I want to do. And you can be mean as a snake, but you believe the fundamentals. That's not the gospel. The gospel is evangelicalism. The good news that we talk to each other that Christ is risen, he's finished the work on our behalf. But here's what they do secondly, and is much more dangerous, is what does he do in verse 10? He says, here now you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of the rock? Shall we bring water for you out of the rock? Not only is he going to be their judge, he's going to be their mediator and their deliverer. And uh, you know what? That's frustrating, isn't it? You ever try to deliver people? Be healed. Or just be nice. Stop that. And so you keep intervening and you get what they call codependent relationships. I call it idolatry. But you're trying, you know, you need to do, you need to, uh, what if, look at all I've done for you and what do you appreciate by, about, about me? And do we do that as husbands and wives all the time, don't we? Well, you know what, they do one thing wrong and then you do what Steve Talitsky, our counselor, says, universalize everything. You never do so inside. And look at all I've done for you and this is what the appreciation I get. That's exactly what Moses is doing. Now, I want to say something to you elders and deacons and all of you other who are more mature Christians. Do you ever, do you ever understand, do you, do you ever try to tra- change people and you get frustrated? I know I have. And as your pastor, if you've ever felt that from me, I ask your forgiveness. I don't want to be Moses beating a rock. I want to go, hey, everybody, come here, watch this. Rock. <laughs> Bring forth water to these thirsty people. To these ungrateful people, just like me. And so we live our lives uh, in, in meanness and frustration. And, and, but let me just tell you, look, sometimes I don't know where your spouse is. I don't know where your kids are. Kids, I don't know where your parents are. I don't know where your friends are. But let me tell you, you can't be the Holy Spirit. He must work. The Holy Spirit must change people. Hal Farnsworth has never converted anybody. Now, one last thing to say and, and, uh, and last point is this. We must learn that if our hearts are to never grow so hard that we're of no real effects in the kingdom of God, then we must see the gospel in our text. You see, this is why there had to be a greater than Moses, people. Because Moses failed. But there's one who's greater than Moses, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ because Moses can't deliver. Now, let me say this if you're an unbeliever today, and you know you're an unbeliever, and I appreciate people who are willing to admit it. I heard a statistic one time said 78% of the people, 80-something percent of the people believe in hell and 4% believe they're going there. And I figure, well, that's the 4% probably going to get converted. But if you're not a believer here today, let me just say this to you. You can't change your heart. Education doesn't do it. University of Georgia is not going to change your heart. 
Family can't change your heart. Great preaching can't change your heart. Great churches, great fellowship cannot change your heart. Nothing can change your heart. The law cannot change your heart. And so there had to be a greater than Moses because Moses came to mediate the law and the law was to say to you, you're in the wilderness, friend, and unless that rock gives water, you're done. You might ask me then, where do you see this in our text? How do you see the gospel in this text? Well, in conclusion, let me tell you where I see it. It is in the fact that the rock gave forth water. And I started doing a study on rock. Just go start doing the study on the rock. And I could give you lots and lots of verses on the rock. Psalm 62, verse 1 says, From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Psalm 18 For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our our God? Psalm 19. These words of my mouth and these meditations of my heart, may they be pleasing in your sight, Lord, uh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He is the rock. Now the reason the rock was not supposed to be struck again is because it was struck the first time in Exodus 17 where God, who could have crushed the people in the wilderness... He tells Moses to take that rod, the rod of authority, and strike me. And when he did, water came gushing out of that rock. In John chapter 7, where Jesus talks, is at the Feast of the Tabernacles. And it's the Feast of Booth. It was when they would get together every year and celebrate by living in booths to remember that you were once in the wilderness. Jesus, in the middle, at the end of that feast, he rises up and says... Whosoever is thirsty, come to me and drink. For I'm the rock. You see, there's grace in the gospel. And who does God want to give water to? People like you and me. Complainers. Gripers. Always wanting their own way. And I'll say to you, if you remain in that condition, you will perish in your sin. I'm just going to tell you, you will perish. There is no Holy Spirit in that. But Jesus promises the woman at the well, the woman had been married five times and was living with a guy, he says, I promise to you that if you come to me, out of your belly will come living waters. Out of who? A harlot? Absolutely. Those who are thirsty. Are you thirsty today? Then I beckon you to come to Jesus Christ. Drink of him. But I warn you that if you remain in the hardness of your heart and the water quits hitting the clay and it begins to crack and it breaks, it is a sign that you were never called. And I encourage you to repent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe in the gospel and drink of Christ and feed upon him. Today, do not delay. Do not delay. Lest your heart be hard. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, we are thankful for the good news of the gospel of Christ. I pray for any who are here who are not born again of your spirit. They know lots about you, but they don't know you. They've never met you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would peel back the curtain, that they might not only understand uh, Jesus with their head, but they might submit their whole life to this wonderful water of living life, the bread of life. Lord, forgive us, forgive me for berating people and not trusting you. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you send revival among us this day? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.